Truth Espresso, Episode 71. Face it, we all would rather sleep in this morning. <sighs> That's why God gave us espresso, to kickstart our zombified corpses into hyperdrive. And now, giving your mind and soul the morning shot of truth it craves. This is Truth Espresso with Daniel Minnick. Well, hello, this is Daniel Minnick, the host of Truth Espresso, and we're going to have an interesting episode this time on Truth Espresso. We're going to have a discussion with Joe from Walk With God, uh, the podcast and YouTube channel. And this discussion is actually going to be a little bit of a shoot from the hip kind of thing. We're just going to have an um, informal conversation about faith and politics. And as we're heading into the uh, most important election in the history of the world, in a few days as of this recording, We're going to lay that anxiety aside, hopefully, because as Christians, we are going to focus on our faith and keeping a level head with our faith and our trust in Jesus. And so we're going to see where things take us. We might agree on some things and disagree on some things as we talk with each other. But what we agree on is our faith in Jesus Christ. And I hope that that will give us and expect that that will give us some sweet fellowship here. And so, Joe, welcome to Truth Espresso. Daniel, thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate your time and willingness to have me as a guest. It's an honor. Well, thank you, Joe, for honoring us here on Truth Espresso. And so, Joe, you have any political interests and what really got you interested in whatever politics you might be interested in? And uh, let me just start with asking if, if there's anything about you that you might want to tell for our listeners first, and then we can get into discussing faith and politics. Yeah, absolutely, Daniel. I think that's a really good place to kind of start. So again, like Daniel said, I'm Joe from Walk With God. Walk With God is a YouTube channel that you can find just by searching for Walk With God, all one word. Also a podcast you can find on various sources and I'm on social media. But just a little bit about me. I'll go a little bit more personal, actually, because I haven't really gotten into kind of my personal background with politics very much on my channel. But I am Christian, like Daniel said. I don't come from a Christian family. I actually come from a very politically divided family. So you have on the farthest left portion of my family, an uncle of mine from Germany who has actually said in the past that he doesn't like Bernie Sanders because he, quote, wants him to be more liberal. And then you've got on the right side of my family, an aunt who I'm pretty sure would vote for Donald Trump just no matter what, pretty much no matter who's Republican, she's voting for them. So it's just a really big spectrum with the real divisions. But the nice thing about my family that I really appreciate is that we have been able to have political discussions even when we disagree. And it's been a little bit harder lately, but there is still that love and that unity that comes through. And you would think that this would show up in the Christian church united more by Jesus. We're not seeing that as much these days. Christian hostility is a real problem within the church, unfortunately. So in terms of what I'm passionate about, I'm really starting to realize just how much the church needs 
unity. Unity doesn't mean uniformity. It doesn't mean everyone thinks and acts the same. We're different members of the body for different reason, with different functions, different experiences. I think God shows us different things and gives us different convictions of heart. So my convictions of heart as a Christian centrist with no partisan ties is that what I've seen a lot of, and this is even before Trump came along, is I was starting to see people really get swayed way too much by their party. And that made me really uncomfortable, even when I was a teenager starting to just learn about politics, just realizing, oh, shoot, these people who find themselves so attached to this one party could be really easily swayed and controlled by that party. And what if this one terrible candidate arises who doesn't really match their values? And that's the closest thing I had to a prophetic word before the Holy Spirit came, because I could just have seen, you know, someone who's really terrible running for office and you know, that political party of choice voting for them, even though they think they're a terrible choice, or just not even thinking that they're a terrible choice, just thinking, well, they're a Republican and just confabulating all their values to work around that or a Democrat. And we saw that in 2016. And I think we're seeing that on some level now. But the interesting thing that I'm starting to realize, too, and I admit to not having a huge grasp on this, is that part of why I agree that this is an important election, I think it's more about the soul of the church, and just the issues that you're seeing in the just deep, deep divisions within the church. There's a lot that needs to be addressed. There's a lot of conversations that need to happen in mature ways that put love first. But most of the time, what we're seeing, unfortunately, even within the church is putting the ego first. We're seeing a lot of Christians arguing from a point of Christian nationalism or Christian liberalism and oftentimes even just emotions and it's not really based in scripture or if it comes back to scripture it's trying to weaponize scripture for a point as opposed to thinking okay how can we conform to scripture so that's what i'm really passionate about is just seeing unity because i've seen it but not within the church and the church is the place that i feel like i should be seeing it that i'm not seeing it in Definitely good uh, thoughts there, Joe. And and like you, I see that there's a really a plight in the church that I think politics tends to divide people that otherwise we should be united. Like what's the goal of the church is um, to obey the commission that Jesus said to go and make disciples from all the nations. And, and because of politics, it seems like we forsake the gospel or we redefine the gospel in terms of of, uh, a political party. And it, what's really interesting, it doesn't seem like either of the two major parties has a solid platform that persists through the years. They're, they're, the issues are always changing. And so it's, it's kind of like a sliding scale that we're forced to constantly adjust to. You know, I think it's really interesting. So it's like politics divides so much that it's like, the sweet fellowship you could have with your neighbor and just discuss what actually matters, faith, that becomes divided and hostility can develop when you see the signs in the yards. And so if I had a sign in my yard for one side, and then I find out my neighbor puts a sign in their yard for the other side, then it's like, oh, you're one of those people. And we stop, people stop thinking of each other as human beings created in the image of God and someone whom I should share the gospel with and more of you're a member of that class, you're a member of that political persuasion. And so now, you know, <laughs> there's unnecessary hostility. Now, 
obviously there are important issues for sure, but I think it's like Christians have become so compromised by politics that they are even compromise or redefine the gospel in terms of alliance to a political party. And so like Joe, I would say that a lot of people have mortgaged their souls to a political party and their brains, and they can't really think in terms of evaluating issues one by one, evaluating their faith without having to put their faith in lockstep with how some other establishments, how some other group of people define it. And so what do you think of that, Joe? Do you think Christians are really compromising their faith when it comes to politics? Yeah, I think you put it really well. I definitely think that there's a lot, not all, but a lot of Christians who are compromising their faith in regards to politics, whether, you know, it's for any of the reasons that you just listed. I think that that, that really hit it on the head. Good good job wording that. I will say, actually, one argument in favor of supporting a political party, and I want to respond to this argument, too, is that this party may advance certain things that you do feel passionate about. And it's okay because these are important issues. They are, like you said, they're kingdom issues and they're things that we should care about. It's part of loving our neighbor on some level, even though we may have issues with the government or certain policies. It is still on some level an extension of our love. If we say that we you know, care about our neighbor, but don't support a policy that would, you know, in theory, help them out, does that really say that we love them, right? Especially when the love that we can extend sometimes feels small in comparison to a piece of legislation. My argument against that is what we're seeing happen, and you can make this work for either party, but I'm just going to go with the Republican side. So if you go with people trying to vote for Donald Trump, for instance, a big issue when he first ran was ironically very similar one to what we're seeing now, which is the Supreme Court. And that with the death of, at the time that was Justice Scalia trying to get Trump in so that Justice Scalia could be replaced by Trump and we could sway the Supreme Court to try and get Roe v. Wade going. And yeah, that, there's legitimate reasons there. I'm not saying I entirely agree or entirely disagree. But what happened was Donald Trump one, he got his Supreme Court pick. And instead of saying, okay, well, we elected Donald Trump for this reason. Now we need to hold him accountable for some of the terrible things he said over Twitter for some of the things in his past. We need to try and hold him to a standard with other issues we don't agree with him on and just try and give him feedback. That's not happening. Instead, people are, are just largely keeping silent who voted for him. And that's what to me is just really disturbing about the political party. It's become all about the vote. Our system has become all about, okay, you vote, that's when you use your voice. That's it. You know, every four years, as opposed to, well, maybe we should be trying to advocate constantly, you know, kind of that long suffering, not giving up and doing good, because in due season, we will reap if we do not give up. And you could make the argument that, yeah, every four years, if you're consistently voting, that's not giving up. But if all you're doing is expressing your vote, and your vote is a very blanket statement, just, okay, Donald Trump should be in office, not Donald Trump should be in office to do this for the Supreme Court or this for veterans. It's kind of hard for people who have been really hurt by some of the things that Donald Trump has said, some of the things that he supports and is trying to get across. And it's not really helping the gospel in that sense. And I could totally make another argument for the left and people who voted for Clinton and some of the things that the Democratic Party is supporting and trying to silence Christianity. 
But at the same time, it just kind of makes you realize our system's broken and we shouldn't be putting hope in it. But you do see both sides putting a lot of hope into the system. And that's where I think the real brokenness comes from. We're hoping too much in the system and not the God who lifted up the leaders who are trying to support this broken system. Yeah, good thoughts there, Joe. And I, I want to think about like some of the scriptures that we have, um, you know, there, even Christians have a lot of fear about things. And, you know, what I like Christians to do is to trust God as long as we're, we're putting our faith in God because we realize that God is sovereign. God is not biting his nails. He's the creator of the universe. And so it's like, you know, Psalm 20 verse 7 says, some trust in chariots, some in horses, but we will remember the name of the Lord our God. And so some trust in (laughs) Joe Biden and some trust in Donald Trump but we will remember the name of the Lord our God. And so I just remember from past elections, you know, every election is said to be the most important election in history. And I know that there are some very important issues that are intense because it seems like there's an intense struggle for power that gets more intense as we go on. And so, yes, that causes a lot of fear because what seems like it there's more idea that your vote counts and that, you know, whoever is put in charge is like a benevolent dictator to enforce his or her will on the entire populace. And so there, there is a lot of fear there, but, you know, I think Christians should focus on like, what is my mission here? And is voting this Christian sacrament? I'm not saying that voting is bad. I'm saying that we should vote if, if you believe that that matters, but to treat voting as this sacrament before God, that you're accomplishing God's will by doing a vote for a person to enact 10% of your will, because, you know, it's like, really, how many people like are voting for either of the two major candidates because that was their personal pick from the start. Most people are voting against the one they don't like. And they're voting out of extreme fear. That's why there's so much tension and riots, because it's not because the Democrats really love Joe Biden, like the voter base. It's because they really can't stand Donald Trump and they think that he's going to destroy the country. And the same with Republicans, the voter base. There are people who kind of like Donald Trump, you know, but... It's not like they're voting for him because they think he's the greatest possible guy who could be put in the office. They're voting against Joe Biden. And there's so much fear. And now Christian pastors on election season turn into political figures that would reprimand people based on how they're going to vote or encourage them to vote. And they put so much emphasis on that, like it's an ordinance of God. But instead of focusing focusing so much on that, we should focus on what is the right thing that Christians should be doing? How do you have faith in God? And how do you trust God if you do the right thing? For example, with Joshua, you know, for thinking about the election with the two sides, remember the angel, the host of the Lord, appeared to Joshua, and Joshua basically asks, which side are you on? And the angel says, 
No, but as the captain of the host of the Lord, I am coming. Joshua falls prostrate. You know, we should realize we should think of God that way. You know, instead of asking God, what side are you on? We should think, am I on God's side? Yeah, that's really, that's powerful. And that's actually quite an interesting scripture passage that you have me read from, because I was just reading that in Joshua the other day in my Bible reading passage. Yeah, that, that's absolutely right. We have to wonder if we're on God's side. And one thing, actually, I would kind of add to what you're saying, because you're right, there's a lot of fear there. But what I would like to hear more from pastors, and thankfully, it seems like I'm hearing this from the pastors at my church, and I appreciate that. But what I would like to hear more of is whoever gets into office, you know, where to be submissive to them, even if they are an evil dictator. Emperor Nero was an evil dictator when Paul wrote his letter to Titus to the church in Crete and said, look, remind the Cretans in your church to be submissive to rulers and authorities. And Emperor Nero was terrible. He was one of the worst leaders in the history of the world, way worse than Donald Trump. And here Paul is saying you are to be submissive to him. And the more you look at those scriptures, the more you kind of realize, wow, this submissiveness to authorities, that's an extension of our submissiveness to God. Because if God puts every authority in place for a reason, which we read about in a couple of verses, particularly Daniel 2 verses 20 to 21, then we realize, oh, that's an extension of our trust for God. And Granted, if an authority is put in place and asks you very directly or something to that nature to basically say, do this against your faith, don't do it. But I think that that's been more the exception these days than a lot of Christians make it out to seem. Uh, to kind of get to your point earlier about the sense of urgency that both sides are really showing in terms of, you know, this leader is going to be an evil dictator, so let's vote against him. I would encourage anyone listening to this who hasn't voted yet or is still talking with people about politics, so most everyone fits that second category, to think of this piece of advice I got during a fieldwork rotation I had. So I'm an occupational therapist, and we have to do fieldworks. My first one was at a VA, great experience, and it was actually a little bit after Donald Trump got into office. I think I started there, yeah, four months into his presidency. And I was in acute inpatient mental health. So basically a psych ward for veterans. And one thing that the OT told me that was really helpful that really has stuck with me after all these years was don't take on their sense of urgency. And it's very easy as a healthcare provider to think, oh, okay, well, I'm working with people who aren't well and I need to help them, you know, with my stuff and everything. But when it comes to anything, especially when it comes to the gospel, the trick is remembering none of us are really well. Jesus came as a physician for those who are in need, which is all of us. None of us are well. Only God is well. Only God is truly righteous. Our goal is to just point other people to him and just admit we're not righteous without God. This righteousness that we have is not of us. And taking on that sense of urgency really goes against the gospel, goes against what Jesus said about, you know, not being anxious about anything. And yet we are not seeing this in modern Christianity in this country. Some questions, uh, Joe, what do you think? Um, how do you personally put Christ first in your politics? That's a really good question. <laughs> I What I try and do is I try and examine the issues as much as possible by scripture. And I also try and look at things as objectively as possible because objectively speaking, I mean, it's going to match with scripture all of the time pretty much because scripture is infallible. 
but I try and do just as much as possible with what would I be thinking if I was not in my particular place? What's this other person going through? You know, just empathy, putting others before myself, compassion. But I also try and really just seek God and pray. So uh, as an example of a topic, actually, a while back when I was a baby Christian, I was trying to think of the topic of abortion because I hadn't really thought on it very much. And then I started to realize, okay, this is a pretty big topic in the Christian world. I kind of need to take a stance here, but I didn't want to take, you know, the abortion is wrong stance just because that's what all the other Christians were saying. I wanted to take that stance because I really believed it. And if I really believe that abortion is okay or optional, the goal would be to say that right? Because this is a bigger issue than I think a lot of people make it out to be. And it's a not necessarily more important issue, but it's a more encompassing issue. So what I did was I just kind of thought, okay, is there a reason to believe that this is a life that we're talking about? And I did my research and even more since then been confirmed, yeah, there's every reason to believe that we're talking about a human life when we're talking about an abortion. But I would also add, and what I've also been kind of convicted of just in listening to people on the other side, is that it's not just a human life, it's multiple human lives, because we are talking about the life of a mother. And this is a complicated issue because pregnancy since the fall has been pretty terrible in most cases. You will occasionally hear of people giving birth without any pain. That is far, far the exception. Most of the time, it's pretty painful from what I've heard. So with, there's that, and then there's you know, the responsibility of raising a child. So when it comes to abortion, yes, abortion is a sin, but is it any less sinful for Christians to ignore that you know, there are women who may not have the best education when it comes to sex, that may not understand why sex before marriage is considered a sin in the Bible? I haven't directly said that on my channel, so yeah, I believe sex before marriage is a sin. And you know, we haven't looked at, as Christians, as much in the spotlight that I've seen, okay, how do we really advocate for women and help them to get to a point where they're not committing these sins, or if this happens and they have a life that they're really supported, that they feel loved. But there are organizations out there and there are people who are doing work that should be getting the spotlight that unfortunately aren't. So as an example, I live in San Francisco, down a little bit south of me in kind of the peninsula South Bay area. There is an organization called, uh, just drop the name of it, Real Options. That's the name. So Real Options only has a few locations, but their strategy as a nonprofit is very simple. They directly place themselves right across from Planned Parenthoods, present themselves as an alternative to Planned Parenthood and abortion, give the women who come in uh, other options from abortion, and save lots of lives that way. They've saved thousands of lives. So I think that, yeah, it's one thing to try and convince a woman to not get an abortion, but if you're not really redirecting someone, then they're just going to fall back into their old ways. And we see this a lot in the church. And if we really look at our own Christian lives, I think we see this. I mean, I can say I see this. You know, if we're not saying to someone, stop doing this, do this instead, as opposed to just stop doing this, then there's going to be problems in a Christian walk. That's why when you look at a book like Colossians, Paul does say a lot, don't do this put this off, but then he lists just as many do this, put this on commands. So it's not like you're left with an empty shell. And I think that that's a real problem that we're seeing in the world. And honestly, if just the way that the gospel is being shared, we're seeing it kind of presented as you need to just give all of these things up as opposed to 
you get to take on all of these things, not just eternity at some point whenever you die, but you have the promise of God now. You have the Holy Spirit now. You get to walk in faith and know who God is now. And it changes everything in your life starting now. So in terms of putting the gospel first, yeah, it is thinking about what it looks like to present the gospel, look people, reach nations to, you know, make sure that we have free speech. But also a lot of it is just making sure that, you know, it's just being loving in everyday life, everyday conversations, even like this one are really important to making sure that the gospel is being put first in politics, you know, doing this, being informed, praying, seeking the Lord, turning to the word, just anything that gets you outside of yourself. At least that's worked for me for right now. Yeah, Joe, you hit on some, you hit on some good points about like, really, what is our perspective and the the fact that the scriptures should be our focus and the gospel. And, you know, you, you mentioned the issue of abortion. I don't know if you've listened to some of my episodes of Truth Espresso, especially where I had my wife on as a guest and we were talking about abortion for a series of about eight episodes. And so you, if you listen to those, you know, you see that my wife and I are both solid 100% pro-life and like without compromise at all. But we also recognize that the solution to abortion is not just a legal thing because, you know, so it's like every four years, Christians will show how pro-life they are by casting a vote for some meh candidate, you know, and that's, that's how you show that you are for <laughs> life. But, you know, it's like, there's more to abortion, uh, um, you know, really solving the abortion issue, which I believe that abortion is murder, just as any other murder is murder. And it's a heinous sin. The scripture is solidly against that. And, you know, examples of, um, uh, I think it's in Exodus chapter one, where the Pharaoh commanded the, the baby boys be killed and the Egyptian midwives were praised for saving the children alive. There's an example of it's kind of like the infanticide that's being allowed right now. But, you know, simply overturning Roe versus Wade doesn't end abortion uh, as much as I would like that to happen. In fact, you know, before Roe versus Wade, there was abortion and there were different states had different laws against abortion. And so, you know, overturning Roe versus Wade would at least bring the uh, issue back to the states. And I think as low Local as you go, instead of having the Supreme Court be the final arbiter of all things, all morality, and all trust is everything into a panel of nine judges to be able to determine what's right and wrong. You know, I think it's kind of creepy that people, you know, you know it's like they depend on and they entrust that everything should be solved and deliberated by a panel of nine people in robes. And, and old people at that who have to serve for their entire <laughs> lives and who should be in the most impartial branch of government that's become the most partial that there is. Yes. I mean, definitely over the years, culture has indeed shifted toward favoring abortion. But, you know, if you talk with people personally about the issue, people can be made to think rather than candidates angrily yelling at each other. And, you know, and of course, you know, it's like writing some words on a piece of paper called a law doesn't necessarily 
change everything. You know, there's um, these things that my wife has even volunteered a lot called pregnancy resource centers, which I think the options you mentioned is one of them. And one of them, you know, Sometimes, for example, one that we have volunteered at was right next door to a Planned Parenthood, <laughs> and just like uh, the options you mentioned. And so crisis pregnancy centers are not just political entities that just hold up signs and say abortion is murder. No, they take uh, women in crisis and they counsel them through it and they show them ultrasounds and they, they um, try to persuade them not to get an abortion while you know sharing, many of them are Christians, share the gospel with them and then they love them, they help them through um, the, the pregnancy, they even supply them with free supplies up through like their first year after birth. And, you know, that's really how you handle the abortion issue. It's not just words on a piece of paper, not just a law, not just a court ruling. Culture changes and how you deal with the issue is you have to deal with culture. And dealing with culture is not just some shock uh, change in the law. I mean, I would personally love it if all the laws in the states and the federal government outlawed abortion. That's not going to happen anytime soon because we need to change the culture. Yeah. And, and just, one thing I would uh, kind of add a little bit there actually is, and you kind of got at this a little bit, we tend to forget how even before Roe v. Wade, a lot of those states, and even this still probably happens today, maybe not just in this country, but a lot of states before Roe v. Wade still featured women going to get abortions illegally. That was a thing that doctors did. They would give illegal abortions just for the extra cash. And I mean, I don't like the idea of us going back to that because then it becomes, you know, really hard to handle. At least now, I don't like to say that it's good what's happening now, but right now we have a sense of how bad things are because we're seeing it and we can see it documented from a legal perspective. It's a heinous thing you said that's legal, absolutely. But right now, the fact that we can see it, we can see how bad of a problem is, means that we can deal with it. Or, you know, that we should be dealing with it, that is. And that's why it's really good that your wife and other people like her are working to mitigate that. So praise God for your wife and the work you guys are doing. <laughs> Yeah, thank you. My wife has, in some one of those episodes, my wife has some stories about um, really kind of tear-jerking stories about um, girls that were considering abortion, and you know, my wife persuaded them out of it, and how showing the ultrasound brought them to tears because they really realized what they're seeing there. This, this is a baby. This is a little human being. It's alive. It's moving. It has fingers and toes. It has a face. I could see its eyes and it's, you know, so just so young, just a few, you know, less than 10 weeks old. And it looks like this and it's moving. It's so amazing. You know, did you know that a baby's heartbeat starts at around five weeks you know, wow. that's, that's pretty amazing. You know, it's like, if you yeah. just see the pictures and, and a lot of people will actually not get an abortion when they're confronted with the truth of it, you know, instead of just platitudes and shouting and holding signs, it's showing the truth in love as the apostle Paul says. And we have uh, that. And that's one thing I want to point out. If you're all truth and no love, you won't go anywhere. 
And if you're all love with no truth, your love doesn't have any, you know, backing to it. It's, it's, it's not really love. You need to speak the truth in love and doing that is what changes hearts. Yeah. And I don't think you can really speak the truth without love. And I don't think you can really speak love without the truth because Jesus is the way, the truth and the life. God is love. You can't really say who Jesus is without being truly balanced in your in your loving right because paul talks about what it's like to express love in first corinthians 13 and yeah love is just so much bigger than being complacent that's not the love of god the love of god is that jesus died for our sins while we were still his enemies and yeah it's not loving to you know just shame people because that's not who god is that is never how god has tried to convict people of sin or persuade people and you're absolutely right. That's not what we're seeing in modern Christianity when it comes to abortion or when it comes to just politics as a whole. You have people trying to shame people into voting for Donald Trump or into voting for Joe Biden. And it's not like there aren't legitimate reasons behind it, but I still stand by what I said earlier. I think God gives us different experiences and makes us all fearfully and wonderfully from birth, from conception. And that that's okay. It's okay to have differences in that as long as we're united and knit together in Christ. And it's a little bit harder in practice to actually live that out. <laughs> yes. Man. So Joe, um, here's, here's, a, here's a question that you had pr- uh, posed to me for discussion. What are some specific changes that you would want to see in our political system so that we can have a better path for the gospel? There's a few changes that I would like to see. Uh, one of the ones that really stands out to me is to help, help us have a more representative democracy. I would like us to really re-examine the two-party system and really enable more of a voice for third-party candidates. So my vote was actually, I mailed in my vote a couple weeks ago. It was for Brian Carroll of the American Solidarity Party. And this is not me saying you guys should vote for him. If you guys haven't voted, Look into him. He's a pretty solid candidate. The American Solidarity Party is a Catholic-funded party. And it's interesting that we're talking about the issue of abortion because one of the big things that they focus on is life on all stages and just how the issue of life is on the table for a lot of issues and what that looks like to really support life. And not just, you know, from a, oh, okay, make sure this person lives or anything, but really make sure that someone has the opportunity to really live there's a difference between being alive and living. So I really like that. It's not an especially liberal, it's not an especially conservative party. There's bits of both and there's bits of neither in it. But I do think that it's pretty balanced and it fits my values pretty well. So parties like that, I think, and candidates like Brian Carroll should get more of a spotlight. So there's that. But what I would really like to see is I would really like to see an end of gerrymandering. Should I explain what gerrymandering is, Daniel? Oh, sure. So gerrymandering, if you guys haven't heard of it, is basically when, I forget at what level it occurs at. I think it occurs at multiple levels within a state. But when politicians get elected, they have the right to look at a map of their area, the state, city, town, what have you, and its voting district divisions and draw a map in voting districts in a very strategic way that actually allows 
for them to retain power over time because they know that if this district is kind of this weird size and shape and the way the votes get counted there based on the population, how that population tends to vote, then they're more likely to stay in power. So there's that because that's allowed a lot of politicians to remain in power far longer than they should. And it's really, it's a bipartisan issue. Both sides have vehement opponents. I haven't heard anyone argue for it, but with that being said, it's a law made by politicians and politicians are going to have to be the ones to get rid of it, but politicians aren't getting rid of it because it ultimately helps them get into office. So it's just, yeah, I think that whole thing is stupid. So I would get rid of that because that's getting in the way of our democracy being representative as well. I also think that term limits should be a thing and, and maybe not necessarily the way that a lot of people talk about term limits, because I understand the argument, you know, against having term limits. But at the same time, it does kind of force people to be on a more local level, even if it's just a state level, it does force people into the situation that we were talking about earlier with voting for candidates who they don't necessarily like, because that's the only person who's running and they don't want the other person to get in. So you see that a lot. There's a lot of people in Kentucky who are Republicans who are not big on Mitch McConnell. They will keep voting for Mitch McConnell because they don't want the Democrat to go in at least. <laughs> and so Mitch McConnell has served, I don't even know how many terms now at this point, but I would say just a couple too many personally. So that's just an example. And I'd probably say the same for Nancy Pelosi, for instance. But I think in my California ballot, I don't remember if she had anyone running against her even. So there's just problems like that that make our democracy less representative. Those are probably the big ones that I can think of off the top of my head. There's definitely other ones, I would say, but those are big areas to really start discussion on because they allow people to speak out more and probably even just having more access for people to actually vote, which is an interesting time to think about right now in the age of COVID, where mail-in ballots are being encouraged by a lot of people, and some people are really discouraging them. And I don't know a lot about the true data behind how many votes were being faked before this election, and if that's really going to carry over. Maybe it will increase in this election, because so many people are so intent on having both sides win, and I don't know if one side's going to be more intent than the other, but I also think that that's something that we should at least be a little bit more open to and just allowing voter accessibility more than we do now, right? Make it a Monday instead of a Tuesday and make it a holiday so people can actually get off work easier and vote and maybe even just giving better voter education so that people would be enticed to vote because we have a lot of people who don't vote in this country. Yeah, good points about gerrymandering and, you know, representative democracy there, Joe. I have an interesting point there about representation, you know, that we have uh, 435 representatives in the House of Representatives today. Back in 1776 with the first Congress, there were only 65 representatives, but the population at that time was about 2.5 million people. So if you do the calculation, there was an average of about one representative per 38,000 people. Now, with 425 representatives for 350 million people, now we have an average of one representative per 804,000 people. <laughs> so it seems like, you know, if you think about like no taxation without representation, well, our representation is a lot thinner now because we have 
one person representing close to a million people on average. And, you know, so it's like, I feel like this person doesn't really represent me very well. And of course, you know, my vote counts less for the representatives now. And, it, you know, it seems like now we're getting more taxes and less representation. So some of the things that I, I would like to change, at least culturally thinking about things, is I don't know if you've listened to my episodes about democracy. Democracy has its place, but in my view, you know, democracy, at least pure democracy, is kind of overrated. Like the power of voting is kind of overrated because really, you know, what is my one vote out of millions of others? And the issue really shouldn't be so much of the power to vote as in what are the elected officials allowed to do, you know, because I want more restraint on what the government is able to do or thinks they're able to do more than just the power to vote. Because if you think about a democracy, 50% plus of the population technically could vote to loot the minority. <laughs> um, and so that's, that's something that, you know, we forget because we think that democracy in and of itself is this wonderful thing because it's the power of the people. Well, it's not really the power of the people. It's the power of a majority against a minority. And technically speaking, you could vote over and over and over again and never be represented and never have your will be done. You could always be end up in the minority with your vote. And so, you know, your vote doesn't do anything and you can be plundered. You can have draconian laws voted against you, even though you voted against it. And so really the issue for me isn't just democracy itself you mentioned representative democracy you know there's there's some limits on democracy as far as a representative structure but i think there's been a cultural shift over from really the ideas of the founders of they would call democracy you know a pure democracy a, a mobocracy because they recognize that a majority could vote away the rights the inalienable rights of the minority and so we really want to think in terms of should people be able to vote for this and get it? Maybe that shouldn't be on the table. Um, just because we put something up to a vote and a majority of people vote for it doesn't make it right. You know, really, does a majority make things right? Um, you know, we've had in the past, the majority was in favor of slavery. That doesn't make it right. And what got rid of slavery was the minority, the, the brush fire of really the revolutionaries, the revolutionary ideas that actually have to go against the majority to show this is actually absolutely right. And it doesn't matter if a majority vote in favor of this, that doesn't make it right. And I think, you know, as Christians, we should look at the scriptures and we see in the second table of the Decalogue, thou shalt not kill, thou shalt not steal, thou shalt not commit adultery, thou shalt not bear false witness against thy neighbor, and thou shalt not covet. If we think in terms of just a democracy, might making right there, what happens to thou shalt not steal if we could just put something on the table that says, okay, if you're in favor of stealing this from these people and giving it to these other people, vote, uh, yay or nay, and hey, the majority wins. 
and does that make it right? Well, God says thou shall not steal. That should not be on the table. And so what I would really want change is for people to be able to recognize absolute truth that God says you do not steal, you do not lie, you do not commit adultery, and none of those should be issues on the table regardless of how the government's structured or regardless how many people vote for it. <laughs> yeah, amen. I think that's that's really strong and true. And actually, that was one of the episodes that I listened to kind of to familiarize myself with you. I really liked that episode. The point, though, I, I think actually that you kind of got at, whether indirectly or not, is that there's not really an optimal form of government in this fallen world. And even... I was kind of thinking about this just in preparation for the election. It's just that this world is not our home and never will be as Christians. Our home is with God and we've never been to it. So we're here as exiles and foreign, well, not exiled from God's kingdom, but we are here as foreigners like we are exiles, you know, and it's tough in lots of ways, but ultimately when we get to heaven and we do have a true theocracy, you know, God truly ruling and dwelling among men, it's going to be amazing and there's not going to be any fallen problems that we'll have to deal with. So there's a lot to look forward to there, but when we take that into perspective, a lot of the things that can happen in this world that are terrible, like, yeah, like you said, if there was somehow to be a piece of legislation on the table. I imagine this would probably start local and probably not be a federal thing. But if somehow a more local legislation came up about stealing from certain people being legal, as an example, even if that did get voted, then Christians, you know, we would still just be able to say, okay, we're not participating in this. Let's pray against it. Let's turn to God. Let's remember that he is sovereign in the midst of all of this. Let's trust him. A little bit hard in a situation like that. And just see what he ultimately does with that, because God does sometimes use really bad things like that that are objectively passed to accomplish his will. And it's really extraordinary. It really shows you how sovereign he is, even over sin, that even the worst thing that the devil tried to do and basically manipulating Jesus to be crucified was the best thing that ever could have happened. I mean, only God could make something like that work. But yeah, right now, a lot of it is just trusting God. And even if it was the other way around, you know, even if this legislation in our example never got passed, there's still people from certain classes who will want to steal from people of other classes. And that stuff still happens because the sad truth is, as another Christian put it much better than I could, you can't legislate people's hearts. And we all on some level have hearts of sin. We all have to remember that in our dealings, but none of us have truly been fully sanctified. And that's where a lot of the compassion comes in, but that's also where a lot of the prayer comes in while we're in this world, right? Just remembering, okay, yeah, these terrible things are happening. Theft is happening. Abortion is happening. But this world is fallen. It's given to Satan. No law is going to truly change people's hearts. The only way that hearts are changed is by God. And I do believe that there's more room that the church has to pray for that to happen. Because we were talking about culture change. Culture changes when the people change. And that's what we really need to pray on. Part of why I'm really obsessed with revival. Yes, definitely. Because we talk, as Christians, we emphasize the gospel of Jesus Christ is our ultimate goal as Christians and not politics. But the gospel ultimately leads, or at least it should lead, <laughs> to better politics because we think of, as you said, God changes hearts. And as someone becomes a Christian, 
normally they, then they believe that the word of God is the standard of their faith. And so someone gets converted to the gospel as, as discipled as a Christian and then reads things, as I mentioned, you know, God's law talking about thou shalt not steal. And then they might start to reevaluate things that they thought about before. So conversion of the heart, you, as you said, legislating things doesn't change hearts. And that's, you know, I completely agree with that. I mean, I believe law should be good, of course, you know, and fit with the way God has laid out morality in the scriptures. But we're not going to see that until hearts are changed enough so that the law matches people's hearts. And it's, you know, we talk about the way we think politics the way we'd want things to be changed in the political system. I th- think of this example. I know I kind of got it from, I don't know if you ever heard of uh, Thomas E. Woods. He's like a, a speaker and does a lot of political speeches and stuff like that. But he's like a, he's this um, really powerful kind of libertarian Catholic um, speaker for the, the Ludogon Mises Institute. But an example he gave is about the way we think of as parents raising our kids, like kindergarten. Gardeners, we teach our kindergartners things like, now don't hit Johnny, you don't hit um, other kids, that's wrong, and don't steal the toy, it doesn't belong to you. But then, interestingly, when we become adults, we think that people with special hats or uniforms or badges have some divine right to do what we told kindergartners, not that they shouldn't do, like steal from others and give to us. or And we call that welfare, or they have the right to threaten people with guns and throw them in cages if they don't do some little thing like fill out a form correctly or things that are victimless crimes that have nothing to do with lying, stealing, or hurting others, you know? So it's like, as adults, have we ever grown up from what we expect out of kindergartners, you know? So it's like, politics would be better if it was run the way we think kindergartners should behave. (laughs) So we haven't, you know, it's like, adults need to grow up because the way people deal with politics now, it's almost like we're big kids. Well, I mean, I will say that a lot of the politicians have said and done some very childish things over the years. I mean, I would even argue that government shutdowns and the way that that's been done kind of holds the country hostage. That's Mm -hmm. really that's not even just childish. That's psychotic when you think about it. Mm -hmm. And it's not something that you see in other countries. It's a phenomenon unique to the U.S., well, there are other countries, Australia, Melbourne has, has uh, Melbourne, Australia has like horrible lockdown policy. And, you know, Italy had some pretty harsh lockdowns. Oh, I was referring so, to like when the government can oh. shut down, you know, at the end of the fiscal year, if the budget's not fully oh. passed or anything. Oh, okay. I see. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> oh, okay. Yeah. Well, I thought you were talking about the COVID lockdown. So no. yeah. <laughs> and that, that's where it gets kind of tricky uh, in a different area because COVID is such a unique situation, you know, because there is such a high risk of transmission. And I know so many people who have gotten the virus and how I know just firsthand how easily this thing spreads. It's, it's really tough. And especially in the beginning when we were just learning about it and we were doing such a poor job of controlling it because we didn't know what we were dealing with and we were so unprepared and bluntly so cocky. 
it kind of makes sense that there should be a certain level of caution, but everyone's got such a different idea of what that looks like and how to enact that. And, and it's really become a, a whole partisan thing, which you would think when there was a crisis that people would unite. You know, you see a fire. Oh, hey, let's all try and, you know, throw water on this fire, try and put the fire out instead of arguing about the methods and trying to tear the other person down who's also trying to put out the fire. It's a little bit silly the more we think about it, right? Yeah, I mean, but like some the way I think about it, it's like, okay, when you try to set up certain people who are supposed to be in charge of that thing, there's so much trial and error. And so when you remember the, the early model that 2 million people were going to die from this because they didn't know what was going to happen, mm-hmm. then really, why do we invest so much power in a select few designated experts like, you know, Frederick Hayek talked about, you know, the, cautioned about the um, scientific control of the economy and the pretense of knowledge and it's like okay so somehow these particular people have like demigod-like knowledge and they're you know so they get to call these shots over hundreds of millions of people and then if it's like oh our policies of control were wrong oops well you can't win them all you don't understand we just didn't know how it works well then why why do we even have to invest so much power in a select few experts as if they can tell a nation really how to handle this better than letting the voices of other experts give their viewpoints instead of silencing them and let people, you know, it's not like, say, you know, this is my opinion. It's not like Dr. Anthony Fauci is the be all end all of knowledge about this. There are plenty of other epidemiologists, you know, it's not like he has the only doctorate in it and there are other opinions that differ so you know instead of having someone who's a medical bureaucrat be able to say oh i think this is the way things should be so we we must be obligated to do that i think medical people should be able to give their knowledge and advice but it shouldn't be law yeah because you know then the multi the scripture says the multitude of counselors there is safety but when we put so much on a panel, a tiny panel of experts, because I think there's a lot of there's a lot of this superstition, <laughs> superstitious reverence in a priesthood of experts that we, you know, it's almost like we replace God with human experts. And oh, that's almost we, we control and run the economy instead of thinking like, wait, God's in control and here's what he says is moral. But, you know, it's like the establishment wants to say, oh, you know, that's obsolete. Let's put our human experts in and you must treat them as God. You know. <laughs> yeah, it gets really tricky because on, on one hand, you are, you're right. We do have that human tendency to deify one person or a group of people. And scripture says, you know, we should turn to one person, but that one person is God. And mm-hmm. we are to respect our authorities and generally listen to them unless it directly contradicts the gospel, unless it directly contradicts commands of God. But you know, what do we do if we're not sure about a piece of advice and everything, particularly because, I mean, I'm not an epidemiologist. I can't tell you everything about how this virus spreads or how virus spreads and viruses spread in general. But with that being said, yeah, there is a lot of emphasis placed on Dr. Fauci. Smart man. Don't get me wrong. Mm -hmm. Very respectable and articulate. And every time that I've heard him, but you're absolutely right. He's not the only person. And 
it's tricky because we have that human tendency to want to deify one person or a group of people. And that's actually another thing that I would add to my earlier answer is less emphasis on the presidency because Mm -hmm. we have become a country that has put way more emphasis on the president than was ever intended. And Mm -hmm. it's just the presidency has so much power now. Part of that is because Congress can't pass laws. It takes them forever to do anything. So who do people turn to? They turn to the president and executive orders and everything. And that's not a something that should make you comfortable or if it makes you comfortable it makes you comfortable because you're thinking of your political leader passing executive orders and thinking oh yeah he's going to do the things that i want him to do but then think about it the other direction what if it's the person who you don't want then it suddenly becomes a big bad deal so that's something else i would change and that one's harder to change it's gonna it would take some more time and it would probably take a few pieces of legislation but I do think that if our federal government ran a little bit more like a local government, you know, because local governments get things done because you have to have, in a lot of cases, two thirds majority vote to get any piece of legislation passed. So, I mean, that's a good thing. But then on top of that, Mm -hmm. local governments also have to pass a certain number of legislations per year or something like that. And I don't know that we have that same kind of requirement in the federal government, or if we do it, it's not as spotlit as it should be. Yeah, you def- I, I definitely agree when you mention the local government, you know, as someone who would consider himself libertarian leaning Christian, there should be a lot more focus by people on local matters because, you know, that's where you have a lot more influence is locally, you know, it's called the lesser magistrate. And because there, there's so much superstition on the presidency and the Congress and to think, you know, it's like, do you really think that one little city in this large landmass can somehow dictate the correct policy over 350 million people? Why do we even think that's necessary? Why do we even want that? Um, yeah, and these- how does Donald Trump represent an area like San Francisco, or even any of California mm-hmm. for that matter? You know, how would Hillary Clinton represent Georgia or any place like that? The answer is yeah. they wouldn't. Oh, you shouldn't be thinking things like that. We're all just one people. What? How dare you think one state's different from another? You know, <laughs> like let's just erase the state boundaries and we're just one big blob. Yeah, like we we really need to actually think about these things. And when you think, like, I mean, I know obviously no one in Washington's going to listen to this, but this is uh, um, something I proposed on an episode, just food for thought. Given how divided the country is, you know, it's almost like split 50-50 in the last several elections. And it's so intense. The battle is so strong over who should be the president. Well, for just food for thought, like, well, why can't the people who want Trump have Trump for them and the people who want Biden have Biden for them. <laughs> you know, he's one is one the group's president, you know, you both get what you want and the and the the president there dictate, you know, executes policy that's only for the people who support them. Well then now you start to think of what's it called? states rights and localities and stuff. That's kind of really the argument that it kind of makes people to think like yeah, why are we battling each other so much for power? We could actually have what we want if we kind of allow ourselves to go our separate ways. You know, that yeah. would solve a lot of 
tension. In theory, in theory, it could solve some real tension. Uh, the concerns that I have, just with my experience, though, I'm not saying it's an inherently bad idea. I just think it would be kind of hard to practically engage. So, for instance, in the greater part of the Bay Area, because San Francisco is only a relatively small part of the Bay Area, there are a decent number of conservatives, actually, many of whom don't want to move. And there are in parts of the South, I have family that lives in South Carolina. That happens to be the more conservative part of my family. But there are still liberal people who live in South Carolina and the neighboring Bible Belt states. So they would probably not want to move. They may have issues with some aspects of the political culture there, but they wouldn't necessarily want to move. And how do you, you know, have, okay, the people in the liberal state or the liberal area have Donald Trump not be their president, but Biden is their president without having them move? Would you force them to move? Would we completely redirect the country? I'm not saying, again, this isn't necessarily a bad idea. It's just, I don't know that it's necessarily something that could be enacted. And maybe some people would be for it. I mean, I'm not entirely against it, but I also have no idea how we would get it out. The, the sad truth is, I don't know that there's really an easy answer to any of the problems that we have now, except for Jesus coming back and just basically, you know, his role. Yeah, I mean, I'm not proposing that as something that really legitimately could happen. It's kind of more of a thought experiment to really think about, like, yeah, wishful why? thinking. We could, we could actually get what we want technically because we want. <laughs> I want this so much. You want this so much. Why do we have to fight each other to impose? our guy on each other why can't we have just have what we want and have our separate ways and whatever they say or execute just applies to their card carrying supporters and mm. stuff and yeah so that's just to get people to think okay the struggle is really a power struggle to impose something on someone else and like well why do we have to impose things on each other it's just a thought yeah like joe uh, um, so just the last question to wrap things up. And so given this is a question that you propose that we could discuss, what are some specific ways that Christians can advance the gospel, regardless of what tyrant wins the White House? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I like that, regardless of which tyrant wins the White House, because right now it's really a competition between two tyrants, and it's just a question of which tyrant it is. Oh, goodness, the times we live in. So I think it kind of gets back to what we were talking about earlier, but just to summarize a little bit and make it real succinct for everyone listening, you know, it starts with, okay, let's just keep following God. God doesn't change. You know, Trump becomes president, God doesn't change. Biden becomes president, Trump, I mean, God doesn't change, right? So that's the wonderful thing about God. We we still get to preach the gospel. It may look a little bit different. And I think that that's where we need to be really careful. So if Trump gets in, then it's a question of whether or not we voted for him and how people who legitimately are afraid of Trump or truly hate Trump or have been affected negatively by Trump. It's a question of how we address them and how we bring it to the gospel. So there's some hard questions that we need to really ask there. There's lots of prayer that we need to do. I think that's another really big point. No matter who gets in office, we need to pray for them. We need to pray for the people, the soul of this country, the legislative issues, and really right now, COVID. We need to just pray about this virus ending because like I said, I've, I've seen the terrible things that it can do. Mostly what I've been seeing actually is from an occupational therapist standpoint, because I work with people and make sure they can do their everyday tasks. 
I've seen how COVID can set a person back and how it can make it hard for them to, you know, just have the energy to do the things that they need and love to do. And then afterwards, sometimes what can happen is there's this weird state of delirium. I don't know if it's gotten a term yet, but it's kind of like this weird cloudiness that someone can kind of experience that really just affects cognition and just overall orientation is almost like a form of dementia. I don't know if it's going to be classified as that, but we'll have to see what the long-term effects are. So there's lots of ways in which COVID is affecting people and we just, we don't want it to spread. So while a certain amount of shutdown is necessary, I mean, we do need things to reopen and we just ultimately need this virus to end and we need to be praying to God about this and whatever our role is in helping things stay open or making sure that we need to keep trying to shelter in place reasonably. I don't know if that's a term where you live, by the way, but where I live in the Bay Area, shelter in place was kind of the term that they started to use right away as opposed to quarantine. So I think, yeah, prayer is a big thing. Understanding our hearts, understanding the hearts of others, and just continually seeking God and dying to self. So really, it's on one hand, it's not really changing because God doesn't change. So how we advance the gospel should always be advancing the gospel. But at the same time, it is changing because the church has, as a whole, I think, in lots of ways, drifted away from that and has focused too much on the specific needs of the times. That isn't to say we don't address the needs of the times, right? I mean, we have a huge issue, morally speaking, about in this country, just the issue of gender identity and just everything that goes around with that. I actually, for my job, was given a card earlier that I could give people for COVID testing about, you know, just my information so they don't have to ask for it every single dang time I get COVID tested. It just, it slows the process down. So they decided to give us these cards and my card has something like six options for uh, gender. I'm serious. And it's just, I was looking at it and just going, what? (laughs) This is the world that we've come to. And that stuff needs to be addressed in church. But at a certain point, what's happened is instead of addressing the topics and bringing it back to the gospel, those topics and advancement of topics has kind of become almost a form of gospel. So we need to really bring it back to the good news and the truth, because if we're not doing that, then, I mean, we're just talking about the world and people are going to say, okay, great. They're talking about the world, but I mean, I can live in the world and hear about the world without going to church. Why would I go to church? The reason why people go to church and are attracted there is because they see and feel the presence of God and they understand there's a need for God. That's what draws people in. So by really presenting the gospel that Christ died fully for our sins, that we have need of a savior and that that's evident in the world and our politics right now. I think that's really how we advance the gospel is just by bringing it back to the truth, by admitting, yeah, we've been a part of the problem as the church. We've sinned. We've forgotten our first love. You know, as Jesus tells one of the churches in Revelation, we have gotten too caught up in certain legislations and things of the world. We have voted in people we shouldn't have and probably dismissed people that we shouldn't have dismissed. But we're not perfect. We're just trying to point people to a perfect God and trying to seek him ourselves. So the more that we do that and the more that we pray, I think that's ultimately how we move forward. But that being said, it does look a little bit different practically based on who gets into office, based on what legislation does or doesn't get passed. You know, back to Roe v. Wade and abortion. Roe v. Wade isn't torn down, for instance, 
we have to just say, okay, people are still going to get abortions and it's terrible, but let's, like we were talking about earlier, let's advocate, let's try and make sure people understand what they're going through, try and present them with ultrasounds, which I think is something that Real Option does, by the way. Um, mm-hmm. I had forgotten about that, but I think you reminded me, so I appreciate that. So present them with that and do that to really address people, you know, give women the option of, hey, you know, I will adopt your baby or find someone to adopt your baby so you don't do this, you know, with that as an example. Or say, for instance, Roe v. Wade is torn down, well, people are going to be really upset, you know, who want to have the option to get abortions or want other women to have the option for abortions. And that's when we have a very different conversation of, okay, I don't agree with the stance. And Here's why, because life is precious to God. He died that we could live with him and have that opportunity for life and just use that and just have compassion on people who see things differently and really just ask God, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Just as a couple practical examples, there's way more that we could talk about, but I think those are probably the most uh, poignant to what we've been talking about and what seems to be spotlit at the moment. But who knows what will be spotlit in the future, just as long as we bring it back to the gospel and we don't make it and people conforming to our version of it, our gospel, right? Amen, Joe. Some good thoughts there. And um, I'd like to close this episode. If you have any uh, information that you want to give about like how how you want people to contact you or what um, to some of your uh, your ministry is such like, where do you, where do you go to see your podcast? What are some of the things that you do? Yeah. So if you want, you can always subscribe to my channel, walk with God. That's walk with God, all one word. And I'm on YouTube and various podcasts, avenues, anchor, Spotify, Apple podcasts. You can look me up there in terms of contact. My social media is probably the best way to contact me. I take direct messages on Instagram because I, Last I checked, I think I have 48 followers, so more than enough to keep track of messages. And I'm more than happy to take messages, even if it's kind of angry ones, uh, I'll take it and probably pray for you in a case like that. But even if you guys just have prayer requests, I love being able to pray for people who are paying attention to my content. I love being able to reach people who I wouldn't otherwise be able to reach. And you can always leave comments on my videos and uh, Facebook page that I have when I post videos. Uh, my most recent one was actually about politics and how I think Christians should vote, not who I, I think they should vote for, but the part that we should have in voting and seeking how God wants you specifically to vote. Because this election is in six days now, and it's going to be the candidate that God picks regardless of who you vote for, but who you vote for should be who God wants you to vote for. It should be an act of obedience to God. That's the summary of my most recent video which again, you can check out on uh, YouTube, youtube.com slash walk with God, or just search for walk with God, all one word. Love to have you guys stop by and leave a comment. Thank you, Joe. That's Joe from walk with God. Um, but Joe, thank you for being with us on truth espresso. Oh, Daniel, thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate this precious time. Thank you for waking up with Truth Espresso. Good morning, and God bless your day. Hey friends, Daniel Minnick here again. 
If you liked waking up to this episode of Truth Espresso, I would really appreciate it if you would rate it on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or whatever application you use to listen to Truth Espresso.